Almighty God, who alone can order our unruly wills and affections, grant to us that we might love what you command and desire what you promise, so that our hearts may truly be fixed on you, where true joy is to be found, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In our world today, it's not uncommon for people to claim to be spiritual, but certainly not religious. To be spiritual connects us to unseen realities, realities that are powerful and all-encompassing. Being religious, however, well, it's thought to bind us to outward forms of ritual and limit our understanding of divine realities. must admit, I don't like being called religious, but I accept the description given the nature of my role in the parish. And as for being called spiritual, I don't feel very comfortable about that either. After all, spiritual is an adjective that could easily be used to describe the Dalai Lama, the Pope, and Billy Graham, the New Age mystics, and half the population of Byron Bay. The problem with describing someone as spiritual is that it's altogether vague. It could mean almost anything in general and therefore nothing in particular. But in Christianity, spirituality, well, it does have a particular meaning. So I think it's worthwhile to consider what we mean when we talk of spirituality. The question of who is truly spiritual is not a new question. It became a serious question and then a problem in the first century church at Corinth. The Apostle Paul had founded the church there in about 50 AD. Corinth was a Roman colony on the Peloponnese Peninsula of southern Greece. It was an important centre for culture and trade and it attracted many of the wealthy and the upper class. It was a city of rich culture and its citizens worshipped many gods. Aphrodite was probably the best known, for she was associated with love and temple prostitution. After Paul founded the church in Corinth, he stayed there for about 18 months, and then he moved on to plant the next church in Ephesus. And the ministry in Corinth, in his absence, was continued by Apollos, who was quite the orator, and he was assisted by Aquila, and Priscilla, a husband and wife team. After leaving Corinth, Paul writes to the church about various matters from Ephesus, and some of which were misunderstood by the Corinthians. Now, we don't have a copy of that letter. It was lost to antiquity, and it's not in our Bible. Later on, Paul receives reports that there's now dissension and factions within the church. As well, there are complex pastoral matters that need attention. So Paul writes again, and that letter we do have. It's 1 Corinthians in our Bible. And it's Paul's response to the, to the reports that he had received. In a sense, it's Paul's answer to the question of, what does it mean to be truly spiritual? Because that was the question posed by many who sought to undermine Paul's authority. And that's the question that asks us to consider. What does true spirituality actually look like in practice? 
Now, the popular understanding of spirituality in first century Greece was linked directly to their philosophers. It was common at the time for philosophers to make a living by travelling around and proclaiming their own brand of wisdom for life. Wannabe philosophers with academic pretensions would attach themselves to these blokes and follow them around. It was a form of one-upmanship. Different groups would argue for the superiority of their way of thinking and they would follow slavishly their intellectual heroes. And what shocked Paul was that factionalism like this, well, it's now entered the church. So he says to them from verse 11, he says, Brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there's quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, well, I follow Apollos. And another says, I follow Cephas. That's Peter. And still another says, well, I follow Christ. And what these factions are, we're not actually told. And as far as we know, Paul, Apollos, Peter, didn't disagree on any significant theological issues. Seems likely then that the factions in Corinth were not divided by doctrine, but by mindset. Instead of focusing on Christ, they exalted human leaders, adopting them as heroes, placing them on a pedestal. And Paul's horrified. He says to them in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Their divisions were petty and immature. It would be like hearing within our own parish something like, we're the 730 congregation. We're the true Anglicans in our parish, For here's where the prayer book and the candles still shine brightly for all to see and hear. Or perhaps we're the 930 congregation. We know what it means to be family and we're not stifled by tradition and ceremony. And when Paul first heard similar nonsense, he thought they were suffering from spiritual amnesia. He thought they'd forgotten the message of Christ crucified, the message through which they'd been converted. They'd shifted their focus from the cross and now they'd let their particular subculture set the agenda for the gospel. And in doing so, the Corinthians actually thought that they were becoming more sophisticated, more spiritual and so much more wiser. But Paul makes it very clear that true spirituality is found not in philosophical argument, but in weakness. And that true wisdom is received not by intellect, but by revelation. When Paul was in Corinth, his personal style of ministry was understated. And his message was centred on the cross. And when he left Corinth, many in the church 
thought that both his style and his message were just a little bit weak. Certainly Paul was not nearly as charismatic as the new leaders emerging in the church. They were giving people what they demanded. The fine oratory and clever arguments of the philosophers. These were the preachers who could gather large audiences. These were the preachers with a personality cult that centred upon, well you guessed it, upon themselves. On the surface they were brilliantly successful. If they lived today they would preach in crystal cathedrals. Or they would have a television audience of many thousands. But the Apostle urges the Corinthians, do not be deceived. God's understanding of what's impressive is very different to the world's. As Paul reminds them in verse 17, For Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And it's true. The cross of Christ is powerful. And always it's attracted strong responses. Non-Christians have never been impressed by it. Did you know that in 1857, archaeologists discovered some 2nd century graffiti in Rome. And it's graffiti that made fun of a young man. And there was a small sketch done of this young man bowing down before a figure on a cross. And the figure on the cross had the head of a donkey. And the caption underneath the figure reads, Alexamenos worships his God. Hmm. If worshipping an executed criminal seemed ridiculous then, then it's no less so today. For many who claim to be Christians, the cross is a bit of an embarrassment. Ask them about Jesus and you'll hear a message, well, not of Christ the Saviour, but of Christ our great moral exemplar. Others are simply mystified because they can't bring themselves to believe in a physical resurrection. Christ's death on the cross seems to them to be little more than a tragic end. Many are so embarrassed by the cross that they'll look elsewhere to find meaning in the gospel. And they'll even try to justify that as spiritual maturity. You'll hear them say stuff like this. All that talk of suffering and death and sacrifice, well, it seems primitive and cruel. But we, the mature and the wise, we can see past that. After all, true spirituality is found not in primitive sacrifice, but within, in our hearts. And that's what Jesus has been trying to teach us all along. And when you think about it, isn't that what all religions are trying to do? Now that's an attractive message. It sounds so wise and so inclusive. There's that word. But it's not the message of the gospel. It's the message of the world. A good test, therefore, of any movement or message that claims to be spiritual is to ask, does this point me to the crucified Christ? Does it exhort me to faith and repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Does it encourage me to grow in the knowledge and love of Christ Jesus the Lord? And if it does none of those, then it's certainly not a message from the Holy Spirit. 
however impressive it may seem. The message of the gospel is a message of the cross. Nevertheless, it's not self-evidently attractive. Certainly the cross is not a message that the world is looking for. As Paul says in verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. And it's true. Many today still refuse to believe unless there's some miraculous proof provided for their benefit. Others like the Greeks look for a version of Christianity that satisfies them intellectually preferably something that fits in with the current world's mindset. But as Christians, we cannot give them that sort of a message. That would be to emasculate the gospel and rob it of any power that it has to save. In 1951, Richard Niebuhr said this. He said, a liberal gospel as such would present us a God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Who needs a saviour if sin and judgment are not the problem? But they are the problem and they're a very real problem. So as Paul says from verse 23, we must preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And when we do preach the gospel of the cross, we will be seen as foolish and weak. And foolish and weak we are. For in the proclamation of the gospel, there is no place for triumphalism. The gospel is not a declaration from the wise to the foolish. Whatever understanding or knowledge or insight that we may have, it has come to us as a gift from God. We've been brought from dead in our trespass and sin to alive in Christ Jesus. And that's happened by the mercy of God, by the cross of Christ, and by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So there is every reason to be grateful and joyful, but absolutely no reason to be triumphant. And nor is the gospel a declaration from the strong to the weak. For the gospel turns worldly wisdom and religion on its head. Salvation is not for the few that are righteous, wise and strong, but for we the many who are sinful, foolish and weak. Jesus didn't lead a charge and say, follow me. He didn't tell us to conquer our fears and look deep within ourselves to find meaning and courage. Actually, he tells us that if we are to follow him, then we're to take up our cross and die to ourselves. If we are going to live, then we first need to die. If we are going to be first, then we need to put ourselves last. His call was not to the wise and the strong, but to the weary and the burdened. And his call was, come to me. For in him alone do we find wisdom for our hearts and rest for our souls. 
Now, if we can only come to God in repentance, humility and trust, then so too will we only grow in our faith and grow in spiritual maturity the same way. Just as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so do we continue to walk in him. For the gospel is not solely a message that the lost might be found and the blind may see. The gospel is also a message and a means for us to grow in our faith. For spiritual maturity requires not wisdom from man and strength from man, but humility and a reliance upon God. And the reason that God chooses you and I to be not only recipients of the gospel, but also bearers of its message, is, as Paul says from verse 27, he does so to shame the worldly wise and the strong. You see, if God had only chosen those of brilliant intellect and masterful oratory, then it would be all glory to them. But instead, God chooses the likes of you and I. So that as Paul says in verse 29, no one may boast before God. And it's true. If anyone around Inverell Parish gets converted, it won't be because we're the worldly wise, the cultural sophisticates and the master orators. We, we are anything but that. And though the message of the cross may seem foolish, it is in fact a message of wisdom from God. But it's a message that does not come to the worldly wise. It comes to the spiritually mature. It's a message that doesn't come by intellectual investigation. It comes by revelation. And as for those who claim to be spiritually mature, but do not recognise the wisdom of the gospel, they are in fact spiritually blind. They're immature. For only God's spirit can reveal God's wisdom. And by his spirit, God reveals himself to us. He does that instrumentally through the writings of the apostles and the prophets. What we call the Bible in its entirety from Genesis to Revelation. And he does that by regeneration. That is the very gift of the Holy Spirit himself. And it's God's Holy Spirit in you and I who enlivens our soul and enlightens our mind so that we might receive God's revelation through the scriptures. Without the Holy Spirit, the Bible is a mystery at best and foolishness at worst. As Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they're spiritually discerned. So brothers and sisters, if we are to grow in spiritual maturity and wisdom, at least in God's eyes, then we should expect four things. Firstly, we should expect to be considered foolish. At the moment, by many, we are considered to be pitilessly deluded. And increasingly, by some, we are despised and held in contempt. 
As recently as April 2015, Cardinal Francis George of Chicago died, and not long before he died, he said this. He said, I expect to die in my bed, and I expect my successor will die in prison. And his successor will die a martyr in the public square. And his successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization, as the church has done before. Now, I think his words are prescient and will prove to be prophetic. Secondly, if we are to grow in spiritual maturity and wisdom, then we should expect not to find any shortcuts. That spiritual maturity and wisdom is a long and difficult path, and it will only grow in us when we are weak and God is strong. Thirdly, we should never expect that God's spirit and God's word are somehow divided. That truly spiritual people don't abandon or contradict the teaching of the Bible. Rather, they make every effort to hear it and obey its message. If you or I claim to receive a message from God that's inconsistent or contrary to the Bible, then we can be sure that it's not from God. That God's word and God's spirit are not divided. And lastly, we should expect that Christ and his cross will remain central to the gospel that we proclaim. Anything that detracts or distracts from the message of the cross, or anything that requires more than the message of the cross, is not true spirituality, it's true worldliness. As Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If a new teaching or movement claims to be from the Spirit but shifts our focus away from the crucified Christ, then we should be concerned. The Holy Spirit and therefore true spirituality will always point us back to the cross. For at the cross, we lay down our burden of sin and find mercy and forgiveness. At the cross, we shall also find our delight and be prompted by God's Holy Spirit to tell others about it, to just start talking. If asked about God and his salvation, then we will always point to the cross. We shall never glory in anything save but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in our worship, we shall join with the chorus in heaven who say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.